This call is being recorded. Hello, and welcome to Bard MBA's second Sustainable Business Fridays of the 2015 to 16 school year. My name is Stephanie Milbergs, and I'm Assistant Director of the Bard MBA program. We are so excited to have Katherine Sheehy, Program Manager for UL Environment's Advisory Services team on our show today. Before turning over the mic to Mariana Saza and Martin Lemos, two second-year BARD MBA students who will be leading today's conversation, I want to provide some background about the BARD MBA in sustainability. We are one of a few programs globally that fully integrate sustainability into our curriculum from the ground up. We are a low residency program where part of our courses are taught online and the other portion are taught over long weekend residencies in New York City. We are a deeply experiential program with first year students partaking in a course called NYC Lab, where they work on real world sustainability challenges for clients. In recent years, some clients have included UBS, Unilever, Lockheed Martin, Con Ed Solutions, and Inward Point, a growing startup. Thank you all so much for joining us today. Please do mute your, mute your phones and headsets at this time to reduce the chance of feedback during this call. I will now turn over the conversation to Mariana Martin, who will introduce Catherine. Welcome to all of you. Thanks so much, Stephanie. And thank you, Catherine, for uh, joining the call with us. I was in, uh, I was in Chicago this summer and met one of Catherine's uh, colleagues at a great event at the Chicago Botanic Gardens and got in touch and we're really excited to have you. So I have, um, I have Catherine's bio and I'll read it and it would be great if uh, anyone on the line sort of remembers she has a really interesting background so you might want to ask about something specific if we don't get into it in the interview. And then hopefully Catherine can provide some color beyond sort of the, the basic bio. So Catherine Sheehy is a program manager for UL Environment Advisory Services team and brings 20 years of project and program management experience to bear for UL's clients. She manages a range of advisory projects including sustainability training initiatives, sustainability risk assessments, and greener marketing positions, positioning support. Catherine was a key member of the team which created UL 880, a standard for sustainability of manufacturing organizations, UL's first standard to address social and environmental responsibility issues at an enterprise level. Before joining UL Environment, a division of UL, which is Underwriters Laboratories, Catherine led organization design and change enablement teams at Accenture. Catherine's other work experience includes working to, be, to update and grow the Corporate Equality Index, a tool that rates businesses and organizations on their treatment of gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender employees and consumers for the Human Rights Campaign. Catherine also served as a Director of Corporate Benchmarking Services at the Investor Responsibility Research Center, where she provided social and environmental screening data on companies to institutional investors. Catherine holds a BA from the University of Notre Dame and an MBA from Robert H. Smith School of Business at the University of Maryland. So, an, imp an impressive background, Catherine. Um, would love to hear a bit more about what brought you to UL Environment and um, how you became such a powerhouse in this space. <laughs> well, thank you for that introduction. Um, I really appreciate being able to join you today and uh, looking forward to interacting with folks on the line. So how did I come to UL Environment? Um, I'll start there. I 
was uh, in management consulting before coming to UL uh, and uh, had gotten into management consulting immediately after finishing my MBA. And part of what I was interested in there, uh, after kind of a, a, a longer history in the kind of corporate responsibility space, and I consider the work that I did focused on LGBT diversity issues at the Human Rights Campaign as consistent with that, I thought, well, I, I want to go back and kind of learn better how to do some of the things that I've been doing. And then I really wanted more corporate experience, and I thought consulting was a great place to give me some of the skills that I thought would be really useful for some of the work that I wanted to do, which is really mission-oriented work around these issues, sustainability issues, corporate responsibility issues broadly. Um, so I worked at, at Accenture for uh, about four years and um, did kind of capture or acquire some of those skills that I was looking for. So I was focusing on that organizational design, the talent and organization performance area of work. And so um, worked on change management, uh, engagements were done, uh, organization design engagements, and realized as I was in that organization that I could also engage on the issues that I was really uh, concerned about and, and interested in around environmental issues, both in terms of you know that company's own environmental footprint and how we actually engaged the customers we worked with in managing our, our work. And so I was a member of uh, a D.C. area green team, and I participated in kind of global conversations about how we were managing our work and some of the strategy that we were developing. In fact, you might be familiar with Net Impact. I'm sure this group is. And uh, the team that I was part of at Accenture, we actually worked on a, an internal um, effort to launch our green teams uh, around the, the country and around the world, actually. Um, look at, and it was part of that that net impact. Um, I'm forgetting the the uh, the program it is, but it's like an impact at work award. So we actually were award recipients the year that we actually launched that program. Um, having said all that, so I was working on those issues. I was touching those issues. It was I was integrating it into the work that I was doing, uh, and I wanted to kind of get back into the subject matter the content um, and actually kind of focus on the sustainability issues that I'd been focusing on earlier in my career. And so I was looking around. I had ended a, a, an engagement, uh, and so I had, you know, in the consulting world, you can be on the bench for a little while, and then you kind of have to get your next engagement. But I had some time, and I thought, you know, what do I really want to do with my life when I grow up? And so I was looking out there in the marketplace just talking to people. I actually wasn't specifically looking for a job. I was looking to understand what were the opportunities out there. And I came across UL uh, in a conversation with someone I was expecting to just have an informational interview with. And he uh, helped me understand that UL was looking at safety in a wholly different way and that they had created this entity called UL Environment it was looking at the sustainability aspects of safety, and that, and that really intrigued me because one of the things that I think is really interesting about what UL does in this space is we, we couch everything that we do in science. So there's a rigor 
of analysis. There's a um, there's an approach that I feel uh, is really important when we look at these issues to parse out the stuff that we might intuitively think makes sense from the stuff that the data actually tells us uh, about the issues that we're concerned about and what bring us together. So um, after kind of walking through what UL was trying to do and UL Environment was trying to accomplish, I thought, well, this is really interesting. I'm going to throw my hat over here. And so that was five years ago. And uh, since then, my, my career in UL Environment is, is uh, shifted. Uh, it's a, a, an entrepreneurial venture within a larger organization. UL is about 11,000 people, and UL Environment is about 120. Uh, but it's been a great journey. And so uh, you know, I'll pause there because I'm happy to answer any questions. But that's kind of how I wound up at UL Environment. Fantastic. Um, I think, as you know, as MBA students, we're all really interested in entrepreneurship. Um, but I think it might be useful for the group to sort of get a basic overview of UL and like what they've done, the heritage of the company, um, and then you hinted at how they started to move into environmental topics. But um, I think it's a really interesting company that not a lot of people know about because you've done your job well <laughs> for almost sure. 100 years. So. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So UL, uh, what we, what our, our kind of tagline mission statement, we have a much longer mission statement, but the kind of short version is we've been working for a safer world since 1894. So it is 120-plus years old, 121. Um, and it started, actually, uh, the Chicago World Fair was in 1893, and this newfangled thing called electricity was being showcased. but. It was in Chicago, and Chicago, a few years before that, had suffered some tremendous fires. So the underwriters, uh, the insurance firms, were not willing to insure the the or the World Fair, the location where this electricity uh, was going to be housed and showcased. And so the vendors who were showcasing their their offerings invited Henry Merrill, uh, an engineer, fire safety engineer from um, Boston out to Chicago to develop the tests and actually validate that the, the, the building was going to be safe. It wasn't going to set Chicago on fire. So I like to say that UL brought, um, made uh, electricity safe for public consumption. Uh, that actually was the founding of our organization. So it's really around, uh, you know, fire kind of shock issues. And, and that's a core piece of what we still do today. We're a, a testing, inspection, and certification firm. So um, you know what you just referred to is true. A lot of people don't know us because we're built into code. So you might, if you if you um, you know take your laptop and turn it upside down, you might see our UL in the circle logo. Or but statistically speaking, in uh, most uh, U.S. homes today, about 120 products in your home probably have some UL safety mark on it. It's that UL in the circle. You might see the red UL in the circle mark. So we have, as you say, um, done our job really well, and which is why nobody knows about us, or a lot, a lot <laughs> of consumers at least don't know about us. Um, and, and that's actually uh, a challenge for an organization such as ours. Um, so part of what, uh, about probably 15 years ago, the organization started to think about is, well, what is, what is this thing called safety? It's different 
from the olden days. You know, it's certainly there's no standard that we uh, maintain today that exists today that we um, that is original from our founding in 1894. But having said that, you know, the whole concept of safety really evolved. And when we did some research with even our customers and consumers about this, we, we understood that they, in fact, were thinking that UL was in the business of looking at safety from a lot of different angles. So since then, the organization started to look outside of that, that fire safety, that electricity safety, you know, those shock hazard concepts, and think about safety in terms of supply chains and labor issues. Think about safety in terms of data integrity and interoperability. Thinking about safety in terms of sustainability issues and more. So we have quite a range of different uh, service offerings today that you wouldn't normally or wouldn't have traditionally um, considered as part of the UL portfolio. The environmental piece uh, came out of this understanding that sustainability is a safety issue, but it's bigger than you know your toaster setting fire to the window dressings in your kitchen. Um, it is about the safety of our planet for future generations. So with that concept in mind, they started to look at this and said, well, you know, in this space, there, there is room for science-based sustainability standards, more room. Yeah, so there, there are, are other organizations that do this work. If you think about, um, you know, the, the, just the eco logo, the certification piece, not the consulting and some of the other stuff we do, there are about, uh, you know, more than 400 eco labels that exist in the marketplace today worldwide. And our eco labels are among them. Eco logo and Green Guard are among our best known. Um, but you know, there was still, nonetheless, when we did a scan of the marketplace, we said, you know, there's a, there's what UL does really well is bring science to bear on these standards development and the testing, inspection, certification piece. So we uh, decided to move into this space. And since then, really also evolved our environmental work. And, and we do, UL Environment is a piece of the larger whole. We actually do a lot of, we do a lot of um, environmental related work or sustainability related work in other parts of organizations. But that's a little bit about UL. Um, we are uh, a, a global company. We have operations around the world. Um, and uh, as I mentioned earlier, we've got about 11,000 employees, and the UL environment piece is about 120 of that whole, and it's part of what we call our venture business line. So we've got some uh, information and insight technology aspects, uh, life and health in, in that mix, and um, you know, just a, a piece of the, the work that's kind of new and innovative is, is in the area where I work. I was, yeah, um, I think as Mariana said, you know, UL is kind of like the beta of Meinhof syndrome. Like you, once you notice it, you see it everywhere. Um, but I'm wondering for the UL environment, who are kind of the leading companies, leading clients that engage on kind of this new sustainability certification and that angle? Uh, and what were the pressures that kind of led them to uh, seek UL out and kind of work together on this uh, new certification? Sure, sure. So, you know, I think that, the, well, the organizations that come to us seeking support and assistance on sustainability issues, and they may be product level certifications or validations, 
which is what we've been talking about. But it can be other things, problem solving around sustainability more broadly. So often the same companies, they, they in fact are the same companies we work with on the safety side. Uh, so we work with, you know, name a, a, a manufacturer, we're probably working with them. Uh, but when you think about the largest companies in the world, we work with them on the sustainability side as well. So we've worked with and do work with, you know, HP, we work with Apple, we work with Walmart, we work with uh, Lenovo, LG, Samsung, you know, et cetera. Um, so what drives them? Well, uh, several things. And, and I think it's just what drives a company toward to look at sustainability issues. Um, some of the drivers are regulatory. So, um, for instance, uh, you know, it's a, these are eco logos or eco labels are typically considered voluntary standards. It's not like a safety standard in in that respect. Nonetheless, there are drivers in the marketplace around green buildings, lead, for instance, where in order to get acknowledgement, to get credit, to get uh, enable your customers to secure points under that framework, your products have to show and demonstrate um, through test. That they help, uh, that they they somehow reduce um, environmental risks or environmental footprint, and so we do work with the built environment, so companies that operate in that space to to validate or certify some of the products and the claims that they're making, and so that was actually behind the development of some of the standards that we work on. You know, there's increasing concern just in the marketplace among consumers about specific issues like chemicals of concern or just about human health issues broadly. So indoor air quality is a huge driver for consumers, for regulators as well. And so there are companies whose products um, you know, can contribute to those issues, like in, uh, asthmatic issues, you know, just the general uh, in, in indoor air quality issues that um, are seeking some way to also differentiate themselves from other markets or from other products. And then increasingly more recently, and I'll, so I'll stop here, there's so many other drivers, but increasingly um, there are uh, B2B drivers, so more procurement uh, requirements around environmental attributes are popping up all over. Walmart is like the best and probably uh, uh, excuse me, the, the, the most well-known example that you're probably familiar with with their um, product level KPIs and their sustainability index. So they drive in the marketplace a lot of change around these issues in requiring from their, um, from their vendors, from the companies that sell product on Walmart shelves, uh, action on a wide range of issues. And so that drives uh, uh, marketplace action and marketplace reaction to these things. I'm wondering how, so if there's, you know, there's 400, I think you said there's 400 eco-labels on the market of varying levels of rigor and maybe validity. Um, how you know, when you're talking to clients about like an engagement that with you is going to require more work because it's more in depth, um, and it might it might sort of dredge up some things that they would not find out about if they had a less rigorous eco label. Like, how does that conversation go? And um, there is regulatory pressure, but perhaps it's happening at different levels of intensity in different countries. Certainly, you know, you're dealing with products that might be sold globally, but 
um, don't have as strict regulations in certain markets. So how does that conversation go with with these big brands? Sure. So let me actually be more precise about my numbers. Mm-hmm. And since I, you know, even from a, I am in a science-based firm, but sometimes I throw out kind of general numbers. <laughs> the Eco Label Index, which is um, the largest global directory of eco labels uh, available on the interwebs today, they're tracking 459 eco labels. They say in 197 company uh, countries, excuse me, um, across 25 industry sectors. So almost 500 actually today. Um, so, you know, a conversation about eco-labels and what does it do? Well, one of the things that, that uh, has driven the market and why eco-labels exist at all is because they are marketing tools. They're great ways to represent to the marketplace something that has kind of, it shortcuts thinking. Because the issues that we're talking about are complex, particularly when you're thinking about a life cycle-based um, standard, which our eco-logo standards are. So um, the conversations that we have with our customers is sometimes about risk. Um, so there are there are different types that it, the kind of um, the labeling schemes that we're talking about, there are, there are ISO, International Standard Organization Frameworks, that really speak to these. They're type 1, type 2, and type 3 eco-labels. And so the, the kind of eco-labels that um, are full life cycle-based eco-labels are considered type 1. That means that you know, they're third-party verified. Uh, they're looking at you know, the, in constructing these kind of evaluation schemes based on life cycle assessments. So there's a level of rigor. There's a level of science-based analysis that uh, provides a greater level of trust. Type uh, 2 eco-labels are... Uh, are, are kind of company eco labels. So when a company says, you know, and it's it's validated internally, and so when a company says, um, you know, these are our green product lines, and they may not have third-party validation, you know, there's a there's a labeling scheme. It's a type of eco label. And then type three are what are called environmental product declarations. So they're more transparency, but it's also based on life cycle assessment. So um, there are also then so you can actually just look at an individual claim like recycled content. You can validate that and provide that information to the marketplace. It doesn't fall into those ISO kind of buckets, but it's it you know the way that you all approaches it. It's it's based on analysis and and test. So there's there's science behind it, and the benefit of that is that it helps companies in the marketplace avoid the risk associated with greenwashing. So the problem with greenwashing is that, one, uh, once something comes out about a product that might be claimed, you know, something might claim that it's green in some way, and then, you know, somehow it comes out that it's not so green, it sort of um, undermines the whole market because that just generates skepticism and consumers will look at that and I've been in this place where I'm like, really? You guys, you, know, you said it was this and you lied to us. Or, you know, they just, you know, Mark didn't understand what they were talking about. So, um, so companies want to avoid that. And particularly in light of in the United States, and there are similar um, bodies elsewhere in the world, but in the U.S., the U.S. Federal Trade Commission 
developed with the shorthand is called the Green Guides that actually do provide pretty clear guidance to marketers about what they can and can't say about the greenness of their products. I'll give you an example. Biodegradability is a huge area of concern and focus for the FTC, and actually they they have um, lodged lawsuits against companies for making biodegradability claims that really may not be accurate because when you think about something like biodegradability, there are conditions that are required for a product to biodegrade. And if the product conceivably isn't kind of disposed of in a way that meets those conditions, then it really technically isn't a valid claim. So we find that actually companies, uh, once they're aware of those kind of risks, they're really sensitive to it. And so they do appreciate the kind of approach that an organization like ours applies. And then they like the shorthand label that kind of says, you know, we did all this great stuff and it's got a whole bunch of data behind it, but boom, here's a label to help indicate that, that uh, and give you that confidence. Right. I mean, it sort of makes me think of, like, the MBA students on the call because we're at MBA in sustainability, so we're trying to figure out, like, how, you know, how do you communicate effectively um, and succinctly something that has a lot of nuance? And you hope that it doesn't come to, like, a big, it, a lot of the conversation is about risk and what value do we provide to companies, like, understanding nuance. And you hope that it doesn't come to, like, a Volkswagen scenario when everyone feels lied to that suddenly sustainability and transparency become a bit more prioritized. Um, mm -hmm. So pa mm -hmm. parallel processes happening in, in ISO and sustainability MBA students currently. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I was wondering about, yeah, go ahead, Mark. Well, I think kind of going off of that, um, you know, I think LCA seems like a, a really difficult claim to kind of illustrate to consumers, right? Um, you know, maybe organic, you can do a couple of shortcuts, you know, it's not, um, there's no chemical pesticides. Uh, recycled, I mean, maybe there's an inherent understanding of that. Um, but for customers, how does UL kind of translate the very scientific, rigorous approach to a way that makes it understandable and allows for like consumer buy-in, uh, kind of beyond just having the certification? What are the is there kind of any educational programming or um, kind of similar scenario that could kind of help educate customers about what these certifications mean and kind of what the science behind these certifications represent? Mm -hmm. That's a great question, and I'd say it's a challenge for the industry. So where UL is today is not consumer-focused. We're a B2B organization. Right. Um, having said that, we have consumer-facing programs. You might, you might have seen our Safety Smart Things, or if you've got kids in your life at all, they may have seen our safety smart video series we do with Disney, for instance. Uh, so we do have some, we do have a lot of, and and we we work with Bill Nye, the science guy. We put out a lot of, um, you know, popular science kind of videos and programming, um, including some things about you know, certain environmental issues. So, so there's, uh, so there's um there is some programming that we do to help people understand these things. You're absolutely right that this life cycle assessment piece is, is complex, and these issues are complex. Um, 
so for instance, uh, you know, you start to you start to break down the concept of of um, chemicals and chemicals of concern. Um, there's a concept of hazard, you know, the hazard versus risk, and and I think that you know there's a focus on uh, just the chemicals themselves versus how they might be used or applied in the production of a product that that gets missed when you actually just think about you know this is a hazardous chemical you know it might be the best chemical on the market for the particular application and in fact it might be applied in a way that that has you know no health risk whatsoever to, to the uh, consumers because of you know it's embedded in something. So, so these are the complex issues that UL actually, you know, constantly works through with our customers, and and it's really our customers who are communicating to the marketplace these complex issues. Now, having said that, um, you know, a few years ago, an organization that UL acquired called TerraChoice uh, did a a consumer-facing um, publication. It was called The Seven Sins of Greenwashing. Essentially, it started. It's a great little tool to help uh, you know, me understand. Well, what what is this stuff, and what are we talking about? What does it mean that something is green? And it walks through, you know, these these ideas that are really quite complex, but it breaks it down in a way that's really nicely kind of accessible. And so, you know, for instance, sin of the hidden trade-off. Well, that's where you might say. You know, there's there's recycled content in this disposable product. Well, the trade-off is it's a disposable product. You know, so <laughs> I think it's helpful in in just conveying to people, you know, oh well, you know, let's think about this in a little bit more depth, but not too much because it'll explode your head. So yeah. it's a constant challenge. Um, we uh, when we do um, you know publications or outreach. You know they're available to consumers, but probably not targeted at the consumer market. So it's more targeted toward the B two B market in understanding, you know, how to communicate or how to position these kind of things in the marketplace. I think there's and and I think there's huge opportunity in um, kind of enabling this kind of communications where you take complex concepts and and break it down to something more digestible. Yeah, I I sort of would assume because so many of the, the things that you are certifying are like components or part of a bigger system, so like the the market who would be seeing the logo might be like architects or people who are buying larger quantities of a product that is certified safe for the home. Um, and then you would get into the sort of chemicals of concern. Um, one thing that I was really interested in was um, chemicals of concern and like healthy sort of healthy products in terms of VOC is um, hospital clients. So have you set, like, are you are you getting sort of more interest from um, the sort of medical and healthcare environment versus, like, the built home commercial space or commercial spaces um, or is it pretty spread across? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I... I, I there was a word in there that I didn't quite capture, but let me let me kind of reflect back on what I think I heard, and you tell me if I heard it right. It's essentially a question of where we're seeing interest in the marketplace and whether the health sector, healthcare sector, is also part of that. 
Yeah, I'm sort of, you know, who is making the most noise right now about understanding what chemicals are like in an environment. So is, mm-hmm. that, a hospital, is that a hospital room, an ER, or is it, you know, uh, really expensive commercial office spaces for like big startups? Yeah, okay, great. You know, one thing, uh, so, so I will answer that question. One thing I should have said at the very beginning to caveat everything that I'm saying, not to put me off the hook, but just to help you understand where I'm coming from. I'm in our advisory practice. And so I, I am uh, not not uh, working with customers on the certification side of our business. Um, but what I am seeing and what what I see from my colleagues is that um, it de- it, there, it depends. And so right now, in terms of the indoor air quality drivers, uh, it is really responding to things like these um, green building protocols, lead being one, but there are others. And so that really is broadly about, you know, built environment and to the extent that hospitals build infrastructure, they too are part of that. Um, you know, specifically in terms of the healthcare industry and some of these drivers, that's really interesting to to consider. We work very closely with J&J, which produces consumer-facing products that you might be familiar with, like Aveeno is one of them. and. Um, you know, they actually are the manufacturers of the Band-Aid product, which has become kind of shorthand for all of those kind of plastic bandage type things. Um, and they they have a medical uh, device division that they also take through, you know, a program, uh, a greener product program they call Earthwards. So they have taken some, some products through that, and it's typically around waste reduction uh, of... Um, you know, packaging for the the kind of products they produce. When you think about things like an environment, a hospital environment, um, there certainly are indoor air quality issues that some hospitals are interested in and and our clients in terms of purchasing uh, EcoLogo certified uh, products, um, cleaning products. Uh, but in terms of the, the kind of drivers in the hospital environment, um, you know, I think because of the nature of those environments where people are are hopefully in and out versus staying with some longevity, um, it, it, it's not an issue that I think has really taken hold as uh, deeply as it has in some other sectors yet. Mm-hmm. And I say, yeah, because there are always uh, new things that drive the marketplace that surprise us even where something becomes of interest. So, for instance, uh, automobile interior air quality is a huge concern in Asia. Um, Not so in the United States um, or some other regions in the world. So we see actually in Asia some interest in greater interest in interior air quality in hospitals specifically than we do in the United States. Great. Uh, to kind of move a little bit uh, away from the certification and more towards that kind of advisory role, um, you know, when somebody comes to UL, are they trying to mitigate risk? Are they they get just get caught in a fire and now they're just trying to put out this kind of reputational uh, impact or 
what is what is kind of the thinking that leads uh, these consumers to kind of approach you and ask for your help on kind of with UL? Yeah, sure. So you know, in, in terms of the, uh, the the space that we're talking about sustainability, you know, the consulting is really really broad, and there's a whole bunch of different things that consultants can do in this space. What UL focuses on are three major categories of work. So one is what we call innovative claims. Another is um, waste diversion. It's a, an emerging huge issue in the marketplace today. And then the third is uh, what we call design for sustainability. So in the innovative claim area, uh, that's very connected to our certifications in that um, because uh, manufacturers and just innovation by its nature is so fast moving, there are a lot of products in the marketplace today for which there are no standards. They don't exist. Uh, mm -hmm. So when a company wants to make a claim about its environmental attributes and get that third-party verification, like, wait, wait a minute, nothing's there. Well, it's because you were innovative, you guys. So um, companies do come to us and say, you know, we've got this thing. It's kind of cool, and it's going to solve this problem. And we say, great, we'll be the judge of that. And so we kind of understand if we can test it, and then if we think that we can, it's called feasibility assessment, then we actually develop a protocol to test it, and then we kind of throw it over the wall to our, our service delivery folks, and they actually certify or validate the results. So that's that innovative claim category, and we've worked with customers, and, and that's how we developed our zero waste, our, our waste diversion um, protocol, actually. Um, we've also developed, you know, recycled content protocol, um, energy consumption protocols in other areas, you know, water uh, reduction protocols for certain product categories. Um, in the waste diversion area, we've got a standard where we can actually validate on a facility level zero waste to landfill or waste diversion. And so, you know, we've got a threshold um, below which we, we don't certify results. It's got to be above a certain amount for them to get, you know, the UL logo. Uh, to use or the UL validation statement. On the advisory side, we work with customers to help them validate their programs, just to understand, you know, do you have some, enough in place to be able to kind of achieve those goals if you've got a zero waste goal? And we worked with Walmart, for instance, in doing, looking at their global program and giving them advice about where to shore up some gaps and, um, and then actually enabling them to report validated numbers in their global responsibility report. In design for sustainability, that can be a kind of broad range of, of um, stuff. So we validate company-owned programs like John, Johnson Johnson's Earthwards program. Uh, Duncan Brands created their own like mini green building uh, program. It's called DD Green Achievement. So it's to encourage franchisees to implement greener building practices for new construction. And um, and we uh, developed in, uh, training with Ingersoll Rand for a design for sustainability program which integrates design, it integrates sustainability concepts into their new product development process. So what drives them? Well, um, it's that they want to differentiate in the marketplace. That's the innovative claim category, I would say. That's really what's driving them. There's no risk there. It's that they but except that they want the third party validation and you know be able to say to the marketplace with confidence that you know this thing does this um, for something like you know our validation or our 
our programs to assist them in understanding systems and processes, yeah, there's there are risk drivers because they don't want to go out in the marketplace and say something that's not true. Right. So it's really about you know helping them communicate more effectively. And then the design for sustainability area is kind of all over. It's it's about risk. It's about opportunity. So I think that there are a lot of drivers today uh, around advisory practices. Yeah, I'm really interested in the desire for sustainability. I mean, we hear a lot of companies saying, well, we want to design for sustainability. Um, and you can kind of tell that they just don't know where to start with that. Um, and so I wonder if companies are approaching you kind of at the end of that process, like we came up with this product, uh, we think that we have this kind of reusable recyclable products, can you verify the claims that this is actually uh, designed sustainably, or are they kind of approaching you at the beginning of that kind of ideating and kind of developing that product and just making sure that there are assumptions and making sure that the kind of uh, the rigor that you bring is kind of available before they even get far along on that process? Yeah, so both. Um, the innovative yeah. claim category, they usually come to us and say, I've got a product that's the best thing since sliced bread, and it does this thing. Or it solves our ozone problem, ozone layer problem, or whatever the claim is. We haven't gotten that one yet, by the way. Um, <laughs> so, so that's kind of products already you know, complete, maybe even in the marketplace already, and we'll say, okay, well, we'll test it. That's, that's an innovative claim path. Um, Design for sustainability and kind of program. Um, so we've we've come into the conversation with clients at different points in that process. Mm -hmm. um, Ingersoll Rand, I will say, is actually really ahead of the pack in my view in creating a formalized component to their new product development process that really brings this thinking up front at the ideation stage. So a new product development process you might be familiar with, you know, it's often like companies use, uh, you know, a stage gate process or they call it different things, but it's it's based on this concept that you've got more ideas than you could possibly execute, and that's good, right. but you got to whittle it down. you got to funnel it to the stuff that's most marketable. So in, in looking at it from the perspective of putting these ideas into the design, into the product development life cycle, you, you get folks thinking about it before they've even started to mock something up, you will be much more effective in if you're going to seek an eco logo, for instance, you're going to be much better positioned to be able to do that. Um, then aside, we find that in our in our certification practice, um, the times can can vary pretty considerably on a certification path and the and the piece, the wild card that actually contributes to that time slippage is always whether our customers have their house in order and are able to actually provide the evidence that we need to be able to certify a claim. If you start at the very beginning and say, I'm going to build it so that it's sustainable, you're collecting by nature, you're collecting that information throughout the process. You're going to be much better able to justify and support a claim at the end of it. And then you'll also probably eke out greater efficiencies in that process. And that's really, you know, this is just good business. That's what we're talking about. So it's that's really what that is all about. I don't know. Uh, did I answer your question? 
Yeah, I, th- I think so. I think what I'm just interested in was just, you know, a lot of companies want to design for sustainability. That's kind of their mission. And that, you know, it seems like some are beginning that ideation process with kind of this idea of we will, you know, track our our data, you know, we will make sure that at the end of the process we can make this claim and then some just kind of tack the claim on towards the end. Um, so I kind of see like innovative claims and design for sustainability almost as a little bit as like opposite ends, right? Um, you know, innovative claims, somebody wants to just verify that what they're what they've done can get this label, can get this uh, data, and then design for sustainability is you're kind of hoping that somebody takes the Ingersoll Rand model and just at the you know beginning of the ideation process, they're kind of thinking through this. So it's interesting to see that kind of you've created an advisory service that can kind of work wherever they are on the product development uh, process. Yeah, I think that's fair. Now, you know, when companies come to us with a product that they want some validation for, you know, whatever the the attribute is that they're interested in. yeah, they may have actually implemented a sustainable design process in, in getting to where they are. We we don't see that. That's not what they're coming to us for. But you know, it's it, it could very well be. But conceptually, the the difference that you just positioned is is spot on. And in fact, you know, we kind of call that our sustainability spectrum in terms of products. So you you've got your greener product. Which may, I mean, it very well may be. It's a better product in terms of certain environmental attributes than than comparative products or previous generation products. But design for sustainability is something different. It's strategic, and it's systems based. It's really actually embedding the thinking, and that's um. And so the the work that we did with Ingersoll Rand in developing this training program, just to say a little bit more about that, actually is a person. It's a certificate training program. So. Ingersoll Rand employees elect to participate, and at the end of the program, they actually get a UL certificate that says, you know, silver or gold level that you are designed for sustainability practitioner. So they're really actually getting, you know, that's their way, you know, the way that they uh, decided to try to foster sustainability thinking in their organization. Uh, Yeah, it's uh, super interesting. I think it's the way I've just starting to realize, I think you've clarified for me, it's like, you know, it used to be you got the product verified. And the product, if you got that verified, it in some way verified the process. And now we're kind of moving to a point where through lifecycle analysis and through design sustainability, you're actually almost verifying the process. And then the product bears a label of that verification. So it's interesting to move mm-hmm. from kind of product to process. Um, so mm-hmm. fascinating. I think we're good to open up to questions. If there's any questions from our audience. Yes, thank you, Martine and Catherine. Um, so everyone, if you want to ask a question, feel free to do so now. There are a couple people I'm going to unmute. So if you're not speaking, just keep your phone on mute, but definitely don't be shy and chime in if you have a question at this time. Uh, we only have a few minutes left, so go ahead. Hi, Catherine. This is Amy. I'm a classmate of Martine's and Mariana in the MBA program. 
And uh, I'm advising an organization in my state of Connecticut. It's a, a, a startup, the Connecticut Sustainable Business Council. And their first initiative is to try to execute or, or try to get the state to have an executive order for sustainable procurement for all state agencies. And so then as such, the question came up, well, how do we certify uh, a business as a sustainable supplier? Is that the kind of thing that you would develop standards for? Um, you know, how, how would we go about doing that? Hmm. Um, so, uh, yes, it, it could be. In fact, uh, so the standard that I first started working on, uh, UL880, Sustainability for Manufacturing Organizations, was the first of it was going to be a sequence, and the second one was going to look at uh, service level organizations. Um, we found actually that the, the marketplace just wasn't ready for it, wasn't, wasn't interested. The kind of certification at a corporate level um, is, is a, I, I, companies just weren't ready to go there. Um, and arguably, uh, certification may not be necessary. There might be proxy indicators that you could look at. So, you know, do, do they produce a GRI report? You know, are they doing something in conformance with ISO 26000, which is another sustainability framework for enterprise-level sustainability? There's an organization called NSF um, that is a standards development organization as well that's been working on a standard for service sector organizations for more than a year. So I'll tell you one thing about standards world is it's not fast, <laughs> particularly if you're developing a consensus-based standard, because you get like you know two consultants in a room, you're going to get seven definitions of sustainability. Well, you think about, or excuse me, a strategy. So if you think about sustainability practitioners trying to come up with some common approaches to some of these issues, that's really um, interesting. <laughs> so, yeah. so, um, so we, yeah. Go, go so, so, well, I, I would just say that you know there's there's really great kind of uh, sustainable procurement um, materials out there, which I'm sure you've come across, right? And so the sustainableprocurement.org resource center, you know, is is one. Um, there are there are several other, and I'm trying to find them right now as we're talking. But you know, UNEP has some sustainable procurement uh, concepts, so there are ways to do that and. And uh, when you look at how the federal government has done this, um, they are looking at at the, from an attribute perspective. So, like I said, you know, does a company actually have a sustainable sustainability policy? Do they have, you know, a um, do they produce a, you know this this report? Are they managing their greenhouse gases? Do they have climate commitments. Whatever whatever might be applicable um, from a service perspective. Yeah, thank you. Did that, you know, did that answer your question? Yeah. yeah, very much. And you know, a lot of the more local certifications that we found are very focused on um, environmental, which is great, but don't take into account so much the you know the social and human side of uh, of sustainability. So we're we're trying to um, you know find some set of standards that that's going to give those equal equal treatment as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and to my knowledge at the moment, so there's a there's a group that you might be familiar with called SASB. Yes, it starts with an S, and it and it's intentionally going to remind you of SASB, right? So financial accounting. So the SASB group is uh, sustainability accounting. 
based, uh, founded by a woman out in California. She's been convening investors who are looking at these issues from a materiality perspective. And so it's the socially responsible investing community that's highly involved in the development of these standards. There are frameworks that they've developed for industry sectors that it would be, it might be really interesting to look at. Yeah, thank you for reminding me about them. That's great. Mm -hmm. Great. Any more questions on the line? Feel free to chime in. I think we have time for maybe one or two more at most. I, I have a question. This is uh, Jesse. I'm also a recent uh, matriculator to the MBA program. Um, I work in the solar industry, so I've dealt with UL for uh, pretty much my entire career um, in all sorts of uh, facets. And uh, UL, you know, along with all the other NRTO labs, I, I see them um, a little bit as kind of a gatekeeper to a lot of products that come onto the market because, frankly, if you're not UL listed, you're, you're really not going to get purchased by um, you know, any, any quality retailer or company. So uh, I, what you started at the beginning talking about UL environmental, and I'm just wondering, UL sort of is potentially in this place, you know, maybe working with the other um, NRTL labs, instead of having it be UL environmental as like a separate entity, sort of incorporating some of those environmental ideas into the existing uh, certifications and standards that already exist. So like a product, you know, has to meet, you know, and then it can be uh, it can be incremental. It doesn't necessarily have to be full board, but in a way so that you know you're not talking about you know a regular product and then this uh, other environmental um, certification, but they they just become one and the same. And perhaps you know that's maybe looking into the future a little bit because I know UL doesn't want to affect their core business. Um, but just any thoughts to you know if that's been talked about or if that's on the horizon. Sure. Yeah. Um, so thanks, Jesse. It's a great question, and you and you point out a couple different things that I think are really important. So, um, first one as a as a gatekeeper, and you know there have been other less um, uh, uh, neutral terms that have been used sometimes about UL's role in the marketplace, <laughs> and that and I'd say uh, that yeah, absolutely, there's an element to that in some of what we do, in that you know if if uh, you want kind of safety uh, certification, which is extraordinarily important, that there's got to be someone in the marketplace that says, yay, or, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down to, to products. Um, the, we, we are trying to, we are evolving. And so, uh, you know, our current positioning and our current perspective is, you know, what we're interested in becoming our, our helpers to companies in terms of market access. So less of a gatekeeper and more of like how do we get the best, safest, you know, most sustainable products to the marketplace. So I just wanted to mention that in terms of, you know, where UL is trying to figure out how we move forward. The question of integration, which is really what you're talking about, has, uh, you know, was, was part of the conversation when we first founded UL Environment. And, at you know, at the time because the sustainability concepts were we're not as evolved as safety has evolved and come to over the, you know, it's UL's 121-year history. Um, we we made a decision to keep these two things separate. Um, and because they're also different practitioners, it's different expertise. 
it's not the same people when you think about developing a standard for a safety uh, a safety aspect of an application. Um, the people who are involved in that work are typically not the same people who are involved in the sustainability attributes. So, from a kind of time management perspective, and just uh, you know, getting the right people in the right room at the right time, it's it is important to kind of factor those things in. We, there's cross references, though. So, increasingly, we're seeing you know what might be considered sustainability issues pop up on the safety side, and it's from more of a compliance perspective when you think of like uh, red list requirements, uh, reach and rows in, in the EU, for instance. These are you know chemical lists and it's transparency requirements. That stuff does start to percolate into the safety side. On the um, and on the environmental side, you know we certainly when we're looking at products that are certified by UL, you know often that's kind of a prereq. We gotta have the safety stuff before we we look at it from a sustainability perspective. Um, uh, and I think it's just going to continue to evolve. Um, but there are what we call these kind of nexus points between these these concepts that happen, and and our um, the, the conversations are are ongoing. Chemicals of concern is a huge one, and so we're actually actively working with the American Chemical uh, Council. We're working with industry. We're working with advocates and activists to really look at that issue and figure out how best to um, approach this from a safety and sustainability perspective and really human health at the end of the day. Um, in addition, uh, you know, a, a big topic of concern in the sustainability space are flame retardants. Huge safety issue. It is a an imperative that, you know, products are designed such that they they prevent or they mitigate fire hazard. You really, really want that. You don't want your house burning down. Um, there's concern about you know the, the content of those materials and so there's a lot of discussion today. Those are the pieces that's where where we see a lot of like we bring together, you know, the the, the leading thinkers in our business and say, figure it out, you guys, this is really, really important and it crosses across the uh, traditional conventional safety New sustainability uh, side of the business. Perfect. Well, I think that was a. Yeah, yeah I don't know if I. That was a great question to end on, Jesse. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's perfect. So, Mariana Martinez, is there anything you all wanted to wrap up with as we're fast approaching one o'clock? It's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you, Catherine. So, I'll let Martina, Mariana, any last things before I wrap up? Yeah, I agree, Stephanie. It's been a great conversation. Thank you so much, Catherine. My last question um, is, you know, can be as light or as as big as you want, but um, what what is the thing that you wished pe more people understood about your industry? So that can either be UL or UL specifically with the advisory services. Hmm, that's a great question. You know, I think it's it's that um, sometimes what we think is the right answer, or you know, obvious, may not be so obvious. So, for instance, I was talking to a colleague who's an expert in life cycle assessments. I'm not. And uh, and we were talking about disposable coffee cups because we were at an event together and I was drinking out of a disposable and I was ashamed of myself because I had my, my travel mug up in my room. And he said, um, well, you know, if you're really talking single use, 
this here in our hands is actually more sustainable than your cup because the embodied energy the in the water that you have to use to wash your cup, you know, that actually makes that product less sustainable from a single-use perspective than this thing in your hands. I'm like, oh, okay, great way to make me, you know, follow my content here, right? Well, you look at the so, – so life cycle assessments are great in disabusing us of knee-jerk reactions. And I think that um, that's the complexity. That's the challenge of communicating these complex things in the marketplace. And um, I guess what I, what I would wish out of that is that more, you know, folks like yourselves kind of help find ways to um, bring that information into the marketplace and really develop – competency. It's it's sustainability competency um, and awareness so that, uh, you know, we can actually do this work much better, much more effectively, really create the kind of global uh, change that we that we need um, in, in achieving sustainability objectives. Wonderful. <laughs> Um, Stephanie, I don't know if you need to do anything to close out the call, but this has been this has been great. Thanks for all everyone who's called in, um, and Catherine, this has been so uh, generous to share your time and experience. Um, a lot a lot of interesting work being done, and congratulations for being in such a cool place. Had a good time. <laughs> great. Well, hey, thank you, and good luck, everybody. Uh, it's just exciting to talk to folks who are you know, bringing kind of the business acumen together with the sustainability uh, concepts and bringing that out into the world however you choose to do it. You just need more of that, and so I applaud you. And, and uh, love BARD. I'm from New York originally. I live in D.C., but, you know, didn't mention that. And I, many years ago I did a, in high school, a summer program on BARD, and I just loved it. And uh, So um, good luck to you all, and, and thank you very much for inviting me to participate in this today. Uh, thank you so much, Catherine. Okay, cool. Yeah, thank you, Catherine. So everyone who's on the line, join us next Friday, October 2nd at noon for a conversation with Saskia Van Ghent, Greenskeeping Manager for Method Home. Thank you all for being a part of today's conversation, and a really big thank you to Catherine, Mariana, and Martine. Have a great weekend, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.